afternoon, everyone. Welcome to We Rise here on 89.3 FM KPFB in Berkeley, occupied Ohlone territory known as Hu Chin. Good afternoon. This is Nicole Gervasio, co-conspirator for We Rise. Today on our episode, we want to celebrate the legacy of radical organizing in this region and also call into question the false narratives that pedestalize certain leaders and organizations without acknowledging the ways in which they were problematic and even counter-revolutionary. And we know, of course, it's MLK Day on Monday, tomorrow, and it's 96 hours of action here in the Bay Area. And with this rich legacy, we want to bring attention to the stories, the narratives that aren't as well known. So we have two incredible guests with us here live in studio, John Hayakawa Tarak and Suleiman Hyatt, thank you both so very much for being here. Absolutely. Well, right on. Thank you for having us. Yeah, let's um, let's start out with introductions. Can you please give our listeners a little background about your experience, how you got into activism? So I guess the, to be honest, I suppose there's two parts of that. There's the, you know, the born black type of thing where it's like you're just thrust into whatever you want to call it, whether it be activism, movement, whatever, struggle, this, that, you know, you're just born into it. And so before you're born, after you die, you're just, you're you're pushing with that. I would say moment of conscious resistance, conscious activism, or the moment where I noticed the, you know, the systems of subjugation, I would most definitely put that closer to like early teenager years where I had that uh, that black moment where some police officers decided to, uh, you know, um, manhandle me, I suppose. And uh, that was kind of that, you know, that direct path. You know, the door opened up, and that was uh, that was my opening right there. This is John. So for me, it had to do with um, I'm the child of a refugee and an immigrant born in the USA on the 4th of July. Uh, my dad was a participant in the Hungarian Revolution of 1956 and came to the United States, and I grew up reading a lot of political stuff. Um, I grew up mostly in England um, during the Reagan-Thatcher era, and so at that time, there was an anti-nuclear movement, and then there was this amazing um, peace encampment of the Greenham Common Women. So even though I was in these very... Um, conservative and privileged milieu, I was hearing about this radical um, anti-nuclear activism, direct action encampment um, to stop the deployment of U.S. nuclear cruise missiles in England and in Europe. So that was sort of coming to consciousness. The other thing was um, because we moved internationally, I got to see extremes of wealth and poverty. And so um, I found myself drawn towards a left analysis. Thank you both so much for sharing those introductions. Building off of that, we'd love just to give even a little more context for listeners about the organizing you've both been doing. So could you share just one of your own activism or organizing origin stories? There are so many ways to make meaning out of what we do and why. So what else can you share, what story, just one story about how you got more involved as an organizer? John, why don't you go first on that one? Okay. So after college at Santa Cruz, I moved to New York for 
law school and and took a leave of absence. There was a um, white supremacist anti-immigrant terrorist group in New Jersey called um, the Dot Busters, which was wandering around um, beating up um, random Indian immigrant people. And there's grassroots organization formed called Indian Youth Against Racism. And I became a participant in that, and we did work to both educate the community, raise awareness. I mean, it was predominantly immigrant Indian community. Um, and there was a generational thing with second-generation kids who'd been raised up, raised here versus immigrant parents and their different levels of understanding of the way the system worked that we navigated, as well as the system, broader system itself. It was an amazing um, experience. These folks from 30-some years ago are still my comrades, although we don't <laughs> see each other or talk very much. But it was a privilege and a blessing to be a part of a grassroots mobilization in an immigrant community. You know, I've been involved with a lot of actions and campaigns and direct actions. Um, I think I first want to open up by, one, giving thanks to the monumentous blessings of interacting with amazing people that have led me on this path. You know, I would most definitely not be here uh, for those folks that I'm looking at, like folks that are indigenous, you know, black folks, POC folks, women, um, amazing queer people, and so on and so forth. Two of the actions that stand in my mind was one uh, derailing the 2006 um, immigrants, uh, or they call it the immigrant, uh, day without a, uh, an immigrant march, and this was in San Jose, and that was one of the largest marches the Bay Area had ever seen. Um, the second thing was uh, my work with the historic uh, Bay Bridge shutdown, and that was uh, that was also very interesting. Um, I know I can go into into depth of that, but those those two actions are the two things that most definitely stand out in my mind among the uh, the the things that I've done in my life. Thank you so much. Yeah, I, th- I think we will definitely come back to that story. So let's talk about the history of organizing and activism here on occupied Ohlone land. Born and raised here, I always referred to my hometown as an epicenter of radical movements, which is an interesting choice of words considering we're on a fault line. So Suleiman, because I know you're also uh, born and raised and grew up here, can you please talk about these radical roots? Yeah, sure. And uh, I know I might leave a few out here and everything, so I'm going to try to just skim through some of the things that are that are highlights in this historical Absolutely. narrative. Absolutely. We're humbly offering the best that we can give right now. I think first and foremost, uh, you had to, you know, really pay respects to the early struggles of the indigenous folks resisting uh, Spanish rule. You're talking about like pre, you know, uh, U.S. history right there, starting from like the West Coast. And so that most definitely would be included with that. And and, and I look at activism in a very broad scope that includes militancy and, and resistance and self de- self-determination uh, and self-defense. And so that most definitely, you know, hits right there. You know, pushing forward to that right there, you're talking about like things around the silver rush, the gold rush, um, you know, the formation of the, the the modern state in California. And there's there's a colorful painting of resistance from uh, from folks with that. Most of the time we tend to start highlighting this around like World War II uh, or we start that history of activism around World War II. Uh, but that would be a, a, a fallacy not to look at what happened pre that. 
Taking that into consideration, most people tend to then point to like things around the Japanese internment camp uh, or uh, Japanese internment camps and the resistance around that. And you're looking at also, uh, you know, longshoremen stuff that was, uh, I'm sorry, that was, that was you know, pre-World War II. I'm sorry about that. Um, the, uh, the worker strikes, the resistance around that, that's also very monumental. You have uh, the radical roots of the mass migration of black people from the south. Uh, into the bay, and that caused a very interesting mixture of blue-collar workers that then produced this uniquely Bay Area flavor of of militancy, um, or at least a perspective of militancy, even though some of it, you know, was most definitely posturing, you know, to be real with that. Um, mm-hmm. And you also have uh, things around like the gay rights struggle, you know, out of uh, San Francisco. And I think at that point, I just want to kind of really focus in and to say like, with the influx of black people and POC people, and especially even uh, migrant workers and, you know, the work around like the farm workers and things like that, you you just have like a peppering of resistance, most of it not, you know, historically documented, but it's most definitely there. And, you know, looking hard enough and stopping to absorb that uh, you will most definitely be put on the right direction in terms of your activism. Um, ignoring that, you know, you can step on the wrong foot, in a sense, in your journey, you know, to, to trying to uh, liberate one's mind. You know, you can, you can dive in any one of those points, but I think that's like, you know, I, I tried to give a, a decently well-rounded like push with that right there. And, uh, you know, to really focus in on women, especially, uh, you know, throughout these movements. Case in point, I'll end with this right here. When you look at the occupation of Alcatraz, most people point to the uh, brothers who did the work in terms of the occupation, but it was actually the women who really set that up and kept that going and initiated that. Thank you so much for naming that. And we'll definitely, as we get into sort of questioning the the dominant narrative that honors MLK, and of course we know he's someone to be honored, but as we tease that apart a bit, we'll get into exactly what you're speaking to. So for listeners, our dear guest, John Hayakawa Tarak, does have to leave early, so I want to make sure you can hear from him before we move on to getting into some, some more of what Suleiman just named. So first of all, John, is there anything you wanted to add to what Suleiman just said? I think it's a privilege and a blessing to be um, in the Bay and be able to work within these legacies. I um, really appreciate the opportunities to learn and to participate that this this um, area provides. You know, there's a substantial contribution that the Bay has made um, not only in terms of activism but in terms of intellectual production to the Black radical tradition. And so that's something I've been influenced by in my thinking and writing for a number of years. One of the learning edges um, to go to that question in the Occupy Oakland space, which is something that I was a participant in, was the question of the use of the term Occupy. And I was part of the Queer People of Color, People of Color Formation or committee within that that raised the question of, well, we're on occupied indigenous land. Also, the United States empire is occupying Iraq and Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. So what does it mean to claim to occupy a space in, when we're um, 
living in the United States of America and at the heart of an empire. Um, so that was a critique that was brought forward by the queer people of color, people of color group within Occupy, and um, that became um, the Decolonize Oakland group. And then ultimately, there was a decision to for that group, Decolonize Oakland, to become autonomous. There was a complicated um, discussion and a vote, and so that was one thing that. Uh, may be of interest in this conversation. Absolutely. So just a reminder to listeners, you are listening to 89.3 FM KPFB in Berkeley, which is occupied Ohlone territory, originally known and still known as Huchin. I'm your host, Kat Petru, and um, my co-host is here today. Can you please introduce yourself again? Hello, this is Nicole Gervasio, co-conspirator for Read Rise. And this um, is just for listeners, John Hayakawa Tarak, who's been a longtime organizer. And we're speaking about the need to challenge the sort of great man narrative that informs, uh, that can inform MLK Day. And we want to honor the many who fuel collective transformation. So please go ahead, Nikki. Speaking to your involvement with the local Occupy movement, can you speak about what remains of that movement today? So Occupy Oakland is dead. Long live the Oakland Commune. So Occupy Oakland had its sort of moment, really, where it was very substantial towards the end of 2011, 2012, I think. One of the things that was central to that organizing project was the idea that the General Assembly was not the place where the bulk of the work was done. And of course, I do not speak for Occupy Oakland. I speak as an individual who was a participant. People were encouraged to form autonomous groups and projects and work on things and then report back as they felt um, useful to the General Assembly. There were a number of committees that were formed and that became active and remained active for periods of time. So while there is a, an ongoing vestige of the Occupy Oakland General Assembly that meets every Sunday at 3 at Oscar Grant Plaza, Frank Ogawa Plaza, it doesn't function as anything other than we share information about some activism that's going on in the Bay and then make announcements. So it's fair to say that there are many projects and some organizations that came out of the Occupy moment that are still active in the Bay, but there is no Occupy Oakland as such. So we know that our guest John has to leave shortly. So this is something that we'll get into after our music break with Nikki and Suleiman. Tomorrow, as we know, is the anniversary of Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday, January 15th, 1929. And there are plenty of places folks can learn about King and his legacy. So let's contextualize this holiday. There's a reason to celebrate King, no doubt. But what vital truths are lost by magnifying him as a great man? Can you speak to that, John, before you take off? A little bit. So the organizing that King did was both uh, church-based and also within a space where, uh, particularly a student organizing space to some extent, where Ella Baker pay, played a critical role in training a lot of people to be active. Now, one of my um, favorite 
if it's if I correct remember correctly, sayings of hers is a strong people doesn't need strong leaders. Right. And so, I think one of the things that uh, in my work I seek to do, but also I think we were tr- tr- doing in Occupy was to encourage people to step up, take leadership, learn to be active participants in not just groups that they were part of, but in in movements for social justice. Um, I think that that's within the tradition of Ella Baker. And um, it's one of the things that makes for powerful movements is a recognition of the work that particularly uh, people like Ella Baker have done. Thank you so much. We are definitely going to be talking about Ella Baker later in the show. John, thank you so much for being here. We're going to take a music break. And when we get back, we'll get more into this conversation. Stay tuned.
afternoon. This is We Rise on 89.3 FM KPFB in Berkeley, occupied Ohlone territory, known as Huchen. I'm your host, Kat Petru, and you just heard Black Girl Soldier by Jamila Woods. We're taking the opportunity that tomorrow is MLK Day to call into question the presumption that a great leader makes a movement. And live in studio, we have my co-host, Nicole Gervasio, and we also had John Hayakawa Tarak, who just had to leave us. And our other wonderful guest is Suleiman Hayat. So thank you for being here. Right on. So did either of you want to say anything following up with what we were just talking about before John left? So the question was, I will repeat it, tomorrow, as I mentioned, is the anniversary of MLK's birthday, January 15th, 1929. And of course, there are plenty of uh, places that folks can learn about King and his legacy. So like I just mentioned, we're trying to contextualize this holiday and there's a reason to celebrate King. But the question we'd post to John was what vital truths are lost by magnifying him as a great man and what other narratives can we tell? So for folks just joining us, we've been we were talking about this before uh, the music break. And I would love to hear from Nikki and Suleiman your thoughts on this. I'd love to share a little bit about alternative narratives. Um, earlier, you spoke about the farm workers movement. And um, actually, part of that story, that narrative, what inspired me was learning that the Filipinos were right along the Chicanos. My people are kind of invisibilized, the Filipinos. And to hear that they're right alongside Cesar Chavez was like super inspiring. And so that actually got me trying to learn more about you know, the history of activism out here and um, how my people were involved. It's great to see people that look like me doing the same work and to see that the importance in that movement was that they were overcoming the divide and conquer technique, right? So Larry Et Leong and the Delano Manong stepping up and joining forces with um, Cesar Chavez and the, the Chicano group. It was just amazing to see that by uniting together and showing solidarity, they were able to make this happen. Yeah, no, legit. So that uh, that uh, solidarity and and crisscrossing and intersectionality was a uh, was very key, and that's what produced, you know, many of the the radical movements that we have, including like the Brown Berets and the Black Panthers, um, just to uh, just to name a few. You know that those foundations were most definitely laid with that uh, with that that crossover right there. I know much that could be seen like in the LA region. You know, as folks were being shifted around and moved, um, depending on like where white people wanted to situate themselves. Yeah, very powerful indeed with that. Yeah, would you like to share more? Um, you know, honestly, I think the first thing that I think about when I contemplate on this weekend is, you know, I think first and foremost uh, for this weekend, giving a big shout out to, you know, uh, the folks who are on the ground who are doing the work, uh, whether it be through cleanups or church groups or uh, whether it be acts of uh, resistance or civil disobedience or direct actions. And I think, um, you know, giving a shout out to, you know, some of the local orgs, uh, APTP and BASAD. And That's Anti-Police Terror Project. That's right. Yeah. Sorry for my acronyms. I know usually like an activist speak, we, we just shoot out acronyms because there's no time to say Ma- the whole thing anymore. Yeah. Many of our listeners probably are familiar, but for those who aren't, I just want to make sure they know who's doing the work right now. Yeah, most definitely. I know Surge is out there, you know, folks from, you know, Bayside. I got some, you know, this homies out there doing the work. And, so and, Surge uh, is standing up for racial justice and Bayside. I forget what that stands for. You know, actually, that's a good question. <laughs> I, I, you use the acronym so much that you actually do start to forget, you know, like just what it is exactly. They can look it up. 
P-A-S-A-T. But uh, yeah, looking at the folks who are doing the work and, and uh, you know, just, just to honor that, to honor the work, you know, uh, some of my stuff with this right here was, or my early involvement was with BLM and the initial call out with uh, Reclaim MLK Day. And um, the reclamation of that, I think, is really important to look at because you're talking about a long history of Martin Luther King's narrative being um, disrupted and retold in a way that is completely illeg- illegitimate. You know, so to to take that moment to, to try to then reclaim it for um, for what it's supposed to be um, committed to, I think that's it's really important because uh, you know we can't we can't allow other people to tell our stories. When you look at the base definition of what oppression is. You know, you have to look beyond, you know, an occupation or violence or or abuse. You actually have to look to the very root of that. And that very root of that is the controlling of someone else's narrative. And when you take it from that point and move out from that point, then you really begin to understand, um, you, you know, you have the proper lens of that. And so, you know, not allowing the state to tell that story on our behalf, you know, and, and, you know, taking that so we can tell that story is really important. I have um, a question. I kind of wanted to talk about a bit how people use quotes from MLK to kind of tell people how to do their movements. So, for mm. example, Black Lives Matter, people using quotes to kind of just, in a way, <clears throat> reprimand the Black Lives Matter movement for the way that they're choosing to demonstrate or organize. And do you have anything to share on that, like your perspective? Oh, yeah. There's some, there's some really funny stories around that. So uh, when we – so here we are, like, planning for the Bay Bridge shutdown. This was 2016, I believe. And, and we know full well that we're doing this to, you know, mimic the the march across the Edmonds Bridge, you know, from MLK and um, all the folks who did that. And the funniest thing is, here we go, we shut it down. After we shut it down, we get this slew of people coming out to be like, oh, what you did was just completely, you know, backwards, and you really shouldn't be doing that, and you should take examples from MLK. And we're just like, uh, we did, actually. And I think one of the funniest stories around that, I love telling stories around this, but the funniest story that, at least by far, that I've come across was uh, somebody was like, you know, MLK wouldn't have done that. And I was like, well, you know, he actually did and then um the second thing was no 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 that's not what i meant i was like well what did you mean well he notified the community through leaflets the white community that he was going to march across this bridge to shut it down and i'm just like oh my god you're out of your mind like you got to be completely out of your mind you're telling me that martin luther king took time out of his busy busy schedule to write a leaflet to the white community to be polite that they're going to march across this bridge? I'm like, no, come on. I was like, really? I mean, really rethink your position on this. And a lot of folks, like, they they don't understand MLK for what it really is. And I urge folks to challenge the narratives that they've been taught, especially in school and especially throughout high school and and college, um, to really challenge that narrative. I mean, understand, like, you know, the last speech that he, he was supposed to give before he died was, uh, you know, titled Why America is Going to Hell. I mean, does that sound like somebody who was like trying to write leaflets to alert the white community that they're going to march across the bridge? Or does that sound like somebody who was like seriously fed up with the, the subjugated conditions of not only him, but his people? It's really easy for folks, like I said, to 
to fall into that trap, to that narrative. And it's an intentional narrative. It's not as if it happens in a vacuum. It's it's intentional. There was an, it was intentional to disrupt his life when he was alive, and it's 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 sure intentional to disrupt his life well after he's dead. And we see that, and we see the disconnect that people have with that. And uh, we especially see that with folks who want to jump up and critique and criticize folks who commit to direct actions and to say, you know, um, we need to be patient. Uh, now is not the time. And the thing I, I shoot back at is uh, the letter from the the letter that King wrote from the Birmingham jail where he he uh, criticized white liberals for their analysis on how my freedom needs, uh, we need patience for my freedom. You know, now is not the right time. But the reality about it is that, you know, that was like 70 years ago. And to, and for people to keep repeating that, that, oh, now is not the right time. Well, when is the right time? Right. I think that's that's the big question that we need to be looking at. Um, and then we come to the reality that folks who, who like to recycle the goobly gop of, you know, be patient and, you know, the system will work itself for your advantage. Those folks, like I said, have fallen victim to that false narrative. Um, and so pushing beyond that. That's how we keep our eyes on the prize with that. Speaking about how the story's kind of been like changed over the years about MLK and his and the way that he did his work, people often think of him as such a peaceful, you know, demonstrator when at the time he was disruptive, they did not think of him as someone who was peaceful. Would you like to speak more on that? Yeah, so that 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 most definitely makes sense right there. I think um Speaking to how his story has been sanitized and people often, you know, cite him as being peaceful. And I think, um, and and I'm, I'm going to go a little deep right here. There are some folks out there, there are many folks out there that talk about, you know, when they, they, they speak of MLK, they talk about, you know, Kingian nonviolence. And I really want to challenge that. I really want to push back against that. I think, I think folks need to understand that when we talk about nonviolent resistance, um, there's a context. There's most definitely a context. And especially folks who then try to link Dr. King and Gandhi to be like, oh, yeah, you see, these people committed to nonviolence to actually achieve their ends. And that's simply not the reality of all the situations. Nonviolence is a tactic to be used. In my honest opinion, and I think, in, you know, speaking historically, nonviolence is a tactic to be used. And Dr. King understood this to a very high degree because his life was threatened on multiple occasions. And many of the people that surrounded him armed themselves. In fact, there's a really good book called This Nonviolent Self Will Get You Killed. You know, the reality about it is that when you live in an area in which people are not afraid, whether it be the KKK, um, are not afraid to come at you and to kill you, um, a great example would be, you know, the case of Emmett Till, where folks were just being, you know, the folks were coming in to drag people out there, out their houses to 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 horrifically murder them. When you live in areas like that, you know, you best believe, you know, you need to come armed to keep those folks away from you. And knowing full well that arming arming yourself actually, I guess to use a play of words, that's what keeps the peace. To be plain, whitewashing that story to come at people who commit to um, militancy uh, and especially acts of self-defense and using other black people and using other radical leaders to then attack radical movements is asinine. I mean, it's it's ludicrous. Um, and that is one of the you know definitions of being counter-revolutionary right there. 
it's shameful to try to use a false narrative of an amazing person and people and movements to attack movements of today and to try to pull into space to be like we need to be nonviolent about this when when you see people in other parts of the world that do not have that luxury of acting nonviolent um you know especially when you have the state that does not care for committing extreme acts of violence so you know and just, to, just to be clear about that and I know some folks out there are going to point to um what's what's her name that put out that book uh, it'll come Chenoweth they're going to you know try to quote the book by Chenoweth talking about oh, Erica how Chenoweth? Erica Chenoweth talking about you know nonviolent struggle is what you know kind of gets the goods and everything and and um this was definitely some real pushback about that and how she uh, formulated some of her book and that's that's another conversation right there but just to be very clear about that, it's like, you know, folks should not be using a whitewashed version of history to attack militant self-defense struggles. Right. Thank you so much for naming all of that. You were, As you were speaking, I was remembering a film called Concerning Violence. It's based on a chapter from Franz Fanon's um, Wretch, from Wretched of the Earth, and it's narrated by Lauren Hill. It's an amazing film. Uh, you can watch it on Netflix, and it really gets into everything that Suleiman was just speaking to. So I highly recommend that if you have access to Netflix um, or know someone who does. And I really appreciate, again, these alternate, not, it's like, they're not alternative narratives, they're truth. And as um, Nikki and I were discussing earlier this week, there's there's a YouTube video uh, that's a play on a song and it's just like why are you always lying like and we 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 know why there are people in power telling lies and so it's just such an honor and so important to be correcting these lives and unlearning the lies so that we can be seeding truth and nourishing the communities and the movements that are happening is that is that song was it why you always lie so good. <laughs> so one critique of movements of the past, uh, the civil rights movement in particular, is that it that there was still misogyny within the movement. And presumably there was also homophobia, transphobia. And of course, BLM, Black Lives Matter, has done an incredible job of centering queer and trans, black and brown women, or femme-identified folks. And so I just want to name that and discuss it a bit and then also talk about the importance of accessibility and challenging ableism because that's something I so often hear left out of conversations like this and then of course from the get-go we've been talking about the need for decolonization but you know in a time where it's unsafe to be native and it's unsafe to be a refugee it's unsafe to I mean any anyone who has sort of a anything but normalized or normative like mental ability is there's just so there's so many ways in which folks are targeted and oppressed so I just want to would love to hear from both of you about how movements of the past did actually or didn't perhaps engage with these intersecting oppressions and work to make the movements in solidarity and then especially I'm curious what you see as the capacity for our movements of today to be decolonial to be challenging ableism etc cetera, etc cetera. yeah that's a that's a that's some good stuff right there so i think uh, on the first part of the question i have to really think back 
Um, well, no. I, before I get to the first part of the question, there are two things that 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 stood in my mind. One one being that whole Ella Baker thing, and the second thing being, you know, how we're under constant, you know, attack, uh, constant subjugation, and I know it's it's kind of easy to kind of slip into the whole like you know oh well, now we're facing these things well the reality about it is like and especially sort of talking about mlk you know there are spirituals that were made around the hardships and the hard times that were going around at that time you know folks have to be like oh you know mr 45 uh, i'm not going to speak his name on air but mr 45 was you know this is the worst and, da, 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 da. and i was like well there were people called andrew jackson I was like, are we forgetting about like these type of folks? Mm-hmm. You know, um, so just like I said, just to kind of name that constant subjugation and then in naming that also kind of recognizing where, you know, we're not, and I'm going to tie this back into Ella Baker right here, where we're not necessarily looking towards like the monumental leader like figures, but actually looking at, you know, where maybe those folks that are that are kind of lifted up on the pedestals, what communities they came from. Because by all means, they, they, they wouldn't be able to have done what they have done if it wasn't from the communities they came from. And I think Malcolm X, for example, is an, is an excellent example of this in which his aunt and family um, uh, was really that support structure um, for him to go in the direction that he went into. And then pointing back to that, kind of bringing it more broadly to a communal level where it's like, you know, if it's not for a community, then you can't, you know, uplift certain people on these pedestals. And you're talking about communities and a constant subjugation. And when you start diving into that, you know, you, you, you start peeling back the layers where it's like you not only have like state repression, communal repression, patriarchal repression, misogynist repression from your own people in the most intimate of, of ways. And so you start to, this, you know, kind of dig in deep into that, you know, the layers of the onion right there. And you get to the center point where you're just like, okay, well, wow, you know, women and children have been like going through this for a long time. And then, you know, you, you can start from that position right there. And then now pulling it back to Ella Baker, who I feel is constantly, um, I feel people don't point to her uh, often, even though it's her work that is much of the foundation of what we have today in terms of like the, I don't want to say leaderless, but leaderful movement or or this this section of the movement that we have right now in, in the continuation of, of this grand movement, this grand struggle that we have. When we look at the the leaders that we have and everything and that's for most people it's very easy to point to the men you know who have been doing the work but it's the reality about it is that you know you're looking at people who were futurists in their own right and it's actually the women you know um and so that's really important to name and to point out and for the ella baker thing i think what we're looking at right now with this latest manifestation of where we're at movement wise uh we're looking at at a situation in which people begin to move away from the grand leader, you know, the the person we have to point to, the Messiah-like thing um, or person that's going to lead us into the promised land. And we're starting to look more into like, well, how do we as a community move ourselves? And this was really a big shift from people pointing to, and you especially find this in like, you know, uh, black radical politics or brown radical politics, where people were like, when the revolution happens, uh, or in, you know, the case of the last poets, when the revolution comes, 
the reality about it is that the revolution is not just going to come. There's no place of revolution that we're going to get to. Um, revolution and liberation happen within these spaces that we conduct each other or conduct with each other um, on an everyday level. We either choose, and I'm pulling from a really awesome professor by the name of Simi, um, who teaches in San Francisco State here, and this is what some that we talked about, but it was we either choose to bring liberation or freedom into our everyday spaces or we choose to bring unfreedom and unliberation into our spaces. And and it is the process of bringing freedom and liberation into our spaces, into our interaction, into our, into our intimate lives um, that actually creates that space, uh, that conjures that space of the alternative structure that we're trying to reach. And these are the things that were predicted, you know, by the Ella Bakers where, you know, it's the everybody has to participate and be a leader in their own rights. And if folks aren't doing that, then then in the reality about that is that we're not bringing, you know, that freedom and that liberation into our spaces, you know, and we look towards other people to take it upon themselves to save us. And yeah. that's just a really backwards way of, of, of producing successful movements. Thank you for naming that and for gathering all the threads of the question I just threw at you. Let's take another music break in honor of Miss Ella Baker. Here is Sweet Honey in the Rock with Ella's song. You believe in freedom, cannot rest until it comes. You believe in freedom, cannot rest. Hear me talking to you. You believe in freedom, cannot rest until it comes. Until the killing of black men. Sons is as important as the killing of white men. White mother sons, we who believe in freedom and freedom Sing it with me if you like it. We who believe in freedom and freedom older I get, the better I know that the secret of my going on is when the reins are in the hands of the young who dare to run against the storm. Cause to me, young people come first. They have the courage where we fail. And if I can but shed some light, I say, carry us through the gates. We who believe in freedom and unrest. Hear me talking to you. We who believe in freedom and unrest. Then struggling myself don't need a whole lot. I've come to realize that teaching others to stand up and fight is the only way my struggle survive. I'm a woman who speaks in a voice, and I must be heard. 
Welcome back to We Rise here on 89.3 FM KPFB in Berkeley, occupied Ohlone territory known as Huchin. I'm your host, Kat Petru, and you just heard Sweet Honey in the Rock with Ella's song. I'm sitting here in studio with Suleiman Hayat, our guest for the hour, and Nicole Gervasio, co-host and co-producer of We Rise. And we're talking about, we were talking about Ella Baker and talking about how movements are formed by collectives of people, not just one great man on this MLK Day holiday weekend. I would love to just share some reflections um, after hearing Suleiman talk about that, um, how the revolution is not going to just be one quick moment, how we can't rely on a single leader or a few leaders to make that revolution happen. It's, it's based on the community and everyday action and just the little interactions you have with people and the little decisions you make. Earlier when we were doing introductions, um, I, I wanted to share a little bit about my experience, um, my, my activism or activist origin story. And um, I really do feel like my activism was kind of in this passive mode, you know? So I had these, I knew where I stood in my head. I was learning, I was trying to just understand how I could be involved. And so I was kind of, you know, an activist in my mind, but not necessarily um, in my body. It wasn't embodying it. And, um, you know, after college, I finally started to get more involved in my community, collaborating with people, and in the more recent years, joining Liberation Spring, the Freedom School. And since then, I've been feeling like my activism is just integrated in my life. So conversations I have with people, the food I choose to purchase, um, the places I choose to support. And also, I know that my activism, I um, before it became you know, when it was passive, I was so isolated. I felt like I didn't know what I could do to help in the movement. And because it's more integrated now and I have community and people to collaborate with, it just strengthens that work because there are so many things that I'm incapable of doing, but there's also so many things I'm capable of doing as an artist, as, as a dancer, as somebody who just wants to help other people who have strong visions or have the skills and have the community and have the tools to do things. Um, I just realized that, you know, being a team team player, collaborator, it's it makes things easier. It makes it less daunting. Saying that actually, I think is really important. And um, when 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 I look back at all the things that I've done, mm-hmm. I can easily say like I've led an exciting activist life of, you know, being on rooftops, scaling things getting arrested, you know, evading arrest, um, blocking things and whatnot. And I mean, like, decent-sized things. So, you know, I can most definitely say, like, I have that excitement. And so 
early on in my life, I, I used to take it like, oh my God, if we're not going hella, if we're not going hella big, they were just not doing it right. And, you know, as I've gotten older, I really begin to rethink how that operates. I think that that go big or go home type thing is most definitely, yeah, it comes from like me being a dude. Um, and, Say it. <laughs> uh, it's not your fault. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, once I once I become conscious of it, it, it most definitely does become my fault. And so <laughs> Fair, fair. Um But uh yeah, Both that and. that most definitely becomes that that's that's present and a lot of folks like to, you know, jump into this uh, struggle and this movement in a romanticized way and so they posture. And many organizations, including the Black Panthers, were most definitely guilty of that posturing. And, you know, the reality about it is that the posturing comes from, like I said, being a dude. So <laughs> there's most, that's elements of that patriarchy right there. And like shifting away from that, you know, mm-hmm. to like, well, what's happening, you know, kind of behind the scenes on stuff? What's happening on the everyday level? Um, I know for me, for example, having, you know, my baby and, and, and kind of shifting, having a major shift in my social life and my ability to be out there doing the things and like just focusing time and attention into like raising a child and building new community around that child and going through the frustrations of like, oh man, I'm not doing the things with my comrades today. You know, I'm at home, you know, baby raising, which I will be doing over this MLK weekend. I will be, you know, looking over my child and also uh, his his bestie uh so that's what's going to be happening and since when has child care never not been a part of any struggle or anyone's life right <laughs> right i mean last i checked is like you can't have people on the front lines if you're not raising the children so mm-hmm. uh you know it's like that's that's real with that mm-hmm. um yeah there's a whole spectrum of roles and work that needs to be done so even the big you know demonstrations and big showy things which right. you know it can be it could be big or it could be really small and it could be um, that's what I'm trying to teach my friends or share with my friends because they're just like, that's not me. Like, I don't, I don't go to marches and stuff. And I'm like, it doesn't have to be a march if that's not for you. There's a time and a place. Find out what works for you. Right. And that's one way that these narratives, these false narratives of what movements or liberation ought to look like can be actually so counter-revolutionary because if you have to be on the front lines every time that leads to burnout that leads to death and we that's not a long-haul sustainable movement for liberation and also we 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 can talk about temporality in this like you were saying before the break Revolution isn't something off in the future. It's how are we relating every single day to one another, to the earth, to our ancestors, to future generations. And it's it's nuanced. It's It has all kinds of emotional tones to it. So it's a helpful for a reminder for all of us that it's not to say don't keep your eye on the prize. And there's that amazing song. But um, do keep your eye on the prize and take care of each other in the process. And so again, hence the need to not pedestalize great leaders, but as Ella Baker refrained again and again, that it's it's each of us participating in a way that we hold each other accountable. We take rest, we, we nurture, we nurture. That's revolutionary. <laughs> Do either of you want to add anything else before we stop? 
You got me thinking about some stuff right now. Um, you know, I think in, in evaluating how we reclaim um, our narratives and our stories, I think it's important to understand the systems of subjugation that we're up against, and whether that be capitalism, colonialism, patriarchy, misogyny, uh, settler colonialism, and all the manifestations of of these things in, a, in its current form. You know, as as you were saying, most definitely taking that time to, you know, preserve oneself, preserve one family, preserve community, and then pushing forward to, you know, fighting tooth and nail to control our narrative and to tell our stories, mm-hmm. um, you know, not giving an inch on anything and, you know, really challenging the the myths that have been created by you know the the state challenging those myths in every form and and shape possible and and it's hard it's not easy because it really seems you know when when people say like don't you know that that's common sense well common sense is the the upholding and fortifying of those myths and so we have to be beyond that we have to you know not be in the in a state of using common sense because common sense is racist common sense is sexist common sense upholds the patriarchy moving beyond that to like i said every day when we wake up renew that intention to to fight like i said and not give an inch and just to have that intent um and to try to have that impact in our lives and sometimes it may not look good sometimes it may look ugly sometimes it may we we may feel defeated uh, sometimes it may be victorious, but every day we get to start that anew. Every day we get to push um, against it. And I'll end with this right here. There was an author, Tayaga, offered that that was asked, like, you know, what does victory look like? And he responded, and he, he's a he's a First Nations um, scholar and activist and uh, educator. And um, he said, uh, as we push towards uh, decolonizing our communities and ourselves, the reality about it is that if the next generation is less colonized than ourselves, than our current generation, then we're on a path of victory. I know that's kind of paraphrasing it right there, but the main thrust of that is, you know, it's not going to happen overnight. It's 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 a long game, and it's going to take generations to cleanse ourselves and to relieve ourselves of the poison that we've been ingesting for so long. Thank you so much, Nikki. Did you want to say anything? No, you said you said it all. Thank you. Are there any events either of you would like to signal boost right now? So there's the march happening on Monday. Um, if you want to actually check out the stuff that's happening this weekend, do check out the Facebook. Like you can, you can go online on Facebook and look up the uh, Reclaim MLK Day in the uh, the Bay Area. And there's stuff happening in Oakland and in San Francisco. And I think there's some movie screenings and there's like the big march and rally that happens on Monday. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to give a shout to my comrade from Abundant Beginnings, uh, Shayna, mm. um, who is. Um, among with other organizations are hosting a kind of like a, a teach-in and they do this every MLK day where they get like the young kids from like starting at like two and younger and up to come together and just to hold that intention of 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 educating the you know the young ones and so they do this every MLK day and it's super awesome to see these little kids come up with like you know do like art builds and banners and come up with statements and to be vocal about that and powerful about that. And that's really beautiful to see. 
Amazing. Thank you so much for saying that. So we are at the end of today's show. You've been listening to We Rise on 89.3 FM KPFB in Berkeley, occupied Ohlone territory known as Huchin. Please tune in next week for an episode of Feral Visions with Dr. Philip Deloria on neocolonial identity politics and playing Indian. And to speak to what Suleiman was just saying, uh, Nikki and I are still Stoked to have the Pink Panthers live in studio coming up for you in a few weeks. So lots in store. You can check us out at mixcloud.com backslash we rise radio. And if you have questions or ideas or want to collaborate, email us at danceisrevolutionary at gmail.com. This is Sweet Honey in the Rock with Ella Song. Have a beautiful and safe weekend. We believe in freedom.